Well, Happy New Year. My name is John Muller. I'm, I serve as one of the pastors, shepherding pastor here at UBC. It's my joy to, this morning to fill in for Brad while, while he's away. We'll spend the next two Sundays in the book of James looking at what genuine faith is, what genuine faith is. It's a great, um, James is a great book, kind of the flip side of the coin to Galatians where Brad has been preaching. Tim Hinshaw is a Christian. He's a husband, father of two children. He's a physician. He practices uh, rheumatology in Roanoke, Virginia. When he was a young boy, his father struggled with a debilitating disease that produced uh, weakness and numbness and extreme pain in his extremities, particularly the legs and feet. Tim recalls praying for his dad's healing for, for years and even decades, yet he was never healed. Little did he know that he was carrying that same gene of his, that his father had. Years later, when he was practicing as a doctor, as a physician, he began to experience discomfort in his feet. Pain and numbness increased to the point that he, he couldn't even complete a day's work. At age 40, he was diagnosed with Charcot Marie Tooth Syndrome. He writes about what he experienced. This is what he says, I quote. He says, The pain progressed to the point that I had to drag myself to the bathroom. I could not tolerate the searing discomfort that came from standing. I was unable to drive and only left the house on Sundays when, with great difficulty, I used a wheelchair to get in and out of church. For a year, there was little sleep, little activity, just the constant pain that dominated my life for 24 hours a day. One day, my daughter in seventh grade came in. My feet hurt were the only words that I heard. And within a few months, she required a wheelchair to go to school. See, I'd already lived a good bit of my life. I had faith that had carried me through. But, but why Anna? There was nothing I could do. I knew the life that was before her. Never being the same as everyone else. Never able to participate with the group. So many difficulties. So much pain. Why do trials like this come? Why trials like this? What purpose do they serve? If God is sovereignly in control of all things, why does he allow these types of trials into our lives? Well, this morning we'll address these questions. We'll address these by looking at the first chapter of the book of James. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to, to, turn, to turn there now. Uh, page of the, uh, 1011 in the Pew Bible there in front of you, if you need one. For the past several Sundays, as I mentioned, Brad's been walking us through the book of Galatians. We've been reminded that the good news of the gospel is not what God requires from us, but what Christ has accomplished for us. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's not about our works, our goodness, our abilities, our efforts that saves us. No, it's, it's about what Christ has done for us. Salvation comes by faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Yet James writes in his book that faith without works is dead. Quick reading of James, you might, you might leave us with a, with a sense that Maybe he's contradicting what Paul says in, in the book of Galatians. Well, before we get into our text today, let me just give you a little bit of background uh, on the book of James. In the New Testament, James is, is literally the, the first book that was written in the New Testament, followed by probably Galatians and then Mark and Matthew. James is the half-brother of Jesus as you remember, this is, he's not to be confused with the Peter, James, and John of the disciples. This is a separate dude. He was the half-brother of Jesus, probably the eldest just under Jesus. He, James and his sisters, they didn't believe in Jesus. We see that recorded in the Gospels. They, they, they thought he was almost out of his mind, thought he was crazy. But James 
encountered Jesus the Christ. During that 40-day period after the resurrection and before his ascension, 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus met James. We don't have... We don't have recorded what that conversation was, but whatever happened there, James was forever changed. Forever changed. James, we find in in the first chapter of Acts, James was there in the upper room with the apostles and the others praying just before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. James was likely there at uh, the Sermon of Peter, where 3,000 people came to faith and the church of Jerusalem was born. James became a, a leader in that church. We see that James in Acts chapter 15, he was, he's, he's now risen to a place of leadership. He's presiding over the Jerusalem council, real important position. By this time, he is the lead pastor, probably the senior pastor there of the church in Jerusalem. We read in these opening, his opening greeting, the words, he identifies himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such humility. These, I mean, I think if I were to write this, it would expose my own pride. It would, it'd probably go something like, if I were writing, James, my name is James, pastor, senior pastor, of First Church Jerusalem and the world, and brother of, and actually the favorite and most adoring brother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's right, he's my brother. That's probably how I would start this. But James jumps in here and he says, no, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word servant, it's that bond servant or slave He identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would ultimately be martyred for serving Christ. James is a pastor with a shepherd's heart. Many of the Christian Jews that were part of the church in Jerusalem were scattered throughout the known world under intense persecution and trials in that day. Many of these new believers had had lost homes and jobs and Friendships, just by coming to faith in Christ, their families oftentimes would reject them, send them on their way. So they're scattered throughout the, throughout the land. And James is writing to these scattered Christian Jews, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's encouraging them in their faith. In describing this letter, John MacArthur writes that James is not a doctrinal treatise but an intensely practical manual for Christian living. If we view this letter as the gospel's ethical or practical uh, imperative, one commentator says the book of James is the most important contribution of all the New Testament. Others see it as a practical outworking of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You can see charts where they outline the Sermon on the Mount and you see James oftentimes kind of connecting, probably heavily influenced by, by that message there on that, on that mountaintop. Kent Hughes, a scholar, commentator, describes James as one of the most practical books in all of the New Testament. So James is writing to these new believers who are, being pressed from every side in their faith. He wants them to know what a, what a follower of Christ, wants to know what, the, what they should do and what they should look like, what they should be. In simple, practical detail, James describes, I mean, he describes what genuine faith looks like. Chapter five, he says that genuine faith is bathed in prayer. It's patient in suffering. In chapter four, genuine faith is ever dependent upon the Lord and and is battling against worldliness. Chapter three, James says that genuine faith is reliant on God's wisdom and proven by a tamed tongue. Chapter two, genuine faith is evidenced by works. We'll talk about that next week. He also says it is shown by generous love. And in chapter one, genuine faith is obedient. It's a doing of the word and it's tested by trial. 
genuine faith is tested by trial. So this brings us to our text this morning. James chapter 1. I want us to read 1 through 18. James, a servant, a bondservant, slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For the... For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails or, or falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James begins his letter there in verse 2 Count it all joy. These words, these simple words, are powerful and profound. We're to consider, to to believe, to embrace that all aspects of our life in Christ are for joy, a pure and complete and God-glorifying joy. Genuine faith is tested by trial for joy, for joy. So we walk through this passage together. I want us to, to take hold of, to see four things. Joy in trials, first, leads to perfection. Second, it leads to prayerfulness. Third, it leads to parity. And lastly, joy in trials leads to promise. So first, joy in trial leads to perfection. Look, look back at verse 3. James tell us, he tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Notice he says, when, not if. When. See, there's three different kinds of people. Those who are in a trial those who have come out of a trial or those who are getting ready to go into a trial. Trials are for sure. We all go through trials and these trials are of various shape and size and intensity. I want us to get real for a minute here. Talking about you and me. This isn't just the people out there. This is you and me. Trials, struggles, Every one of us in this room lives either in or around trials. Like the early Christians reading this letter, we're, we're being pressed and shaken and stretched. And some, some of us here today are even bruised and hurting. In a gathering of this size, I mean, a gathering just like today, there are people who've gone through the holiday season 
still feeling the sting of loss of a loved one. Some in this room have sons and daughters that are currently not walking with the Lord. Maybe they, they profess Christ and then somewhere along the way they've turned away and they feel, those parents feel that pain. Some have been through recent divorce and are trying to, to put the pieces of life back together. In this room, there are some who are struggling in their marriages, struggling with singleness, struggling with the loss of a job. There's some here in this room battling addiction, battling eating disorders, battling deep depression, maybe even suicidal thoughts, battling through not being able to have a child or maybe the loss of a child in a recent miscarriage. There's some, maybe even many here today, who are fighting through a a significant health concern. Some are even maybe trying to push back against that fine line between life and death. I remember we were, I was leading worship one Sunday. We were singing that song, Blessed Be Your Name. We were seated as we were singing. And I remember looking over in the corner and a young lady began to stand as we sang that bridge, you give and take away. And come to find out she had just lost a child in miscarriage. And she was able to stand in the midst of that trial and say, you give and take away, blessed be your name. In this room, maybe even in your section, Maybe even in your row, there are people meeting trials of various kinds. What does James say? He says, count it all joy. Consider it pure joy. That doesn't even make sense. How are we to count it all joy in the midst of such brokenness? Well, look in verse three, he goes on, he says, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is using the trials that we face to build an an inward fortitude, an endurance, a strength. That's what this word steadfastness means. It's in a sense, it's like Working out or exercising, we, we lift weights or we use our muscles. And at the microscopic level, what's happening is our, those muscle cells are, are tearing. And then as they heal, they, they bind back together and they're bigger and stronger than they once were. Trials do that to us. We're, we're torn, we're, we're ripped, we're, we're hurting. And God builds steadfastness in us. And as that healing comes, as we rely on him and as he does this, this work in us, we become stronger. We become fortified. We become steadfast. James goes on to say that this, steadfast, this steadfastness accomplishes something. Notice what he says. It, it makes us perfect and complete. This is God's work of sanctification, making us more and more like Jesus, making us holy. God God allows the storm winds to blow into our lives to produce steadfastness so that we become more whole. We, We become entirely complete and we become perfect, he says. Joy in trials lead to perfection. We, saw, we see this as we read through the scriptures. We see it in Abraham's life and in Joseph and Moses and David. We see it in the prophets and the disciples. We see it in Paul's life. He writes in the letter to the Philippians, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens, strengthens me. In Romans, he writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We find joy, we find praise in the midst of our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance 
And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. What a promise. Jesus too found this deep abiding joy amid intense trial. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, for who, uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can have joy in our trials because we know that God is at work in us. He's strengthening us and perfecting us. He is present in our trials and he is at work in us through our trials. Here's where it gets, I think, a little bit challenging. We, 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 can, we can read this and we can say, all right, God is working in me. In the midst of this trial, I, I know that. In the, in the midst of the brokenness and the hurt. But then sharing that with others is the challenge. James is writing to Christians that are scattered, but he's, 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 he's speaking in the plural term. He's not just talking about individuals. He's talking about the people. James, he's writing, um, he, he, as a pastor there in the church of Jerusalem, he knows the importance of being together, united together, sharing and bearing one another's burdens. But it is so, so hard for us. It's hard for me. So why is it? Why is it that it's difficult for us to bear one another's burdens, to share our trials and concerns with one another? I think there are several things. First of all, our enemy Our enemy knows that there is power in deep spiritual community that cares for one another, bears the burdens of one another. He, man, he loves it when we are are like silos, when we're independent of one another. He doesn't want us to link arms together in our trials because he doesn't want us to become complete and perfect in Christ. He wants us to be consumed by our trials, not made complete in our trials. I think too, our culture fights against us. It teaches us to be independent and individualistic. Strap up your boots. We live in a culture that's all about me, myself, and I. Consumerism, materialism. We share more openly and personally on Facebook and Twitter than we do with real people. We're satisfied with simple, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How about you? Oh, great. Happy New Year. You too, brother. <laughs> it's challenging. I think third, it's, it's just difficult and messy at times. When you ask someone, how are you doing? And the person, instead of that just little quick response, what do you do when they say, I'm struggling right now? My marriage is really fragile and I don't know what to do. It's like, what do you you say? Well, happy new year. (laughs) Hey, better yet, well, hey, I'll I'll pray for you. I'll be praying for you. How many we we do that? Then we go and it just kind of fades away. It's messy. What are we to do? We're to love. We love by tangibly showing that we care. We love by verbally sharing that we empathize with the person. We love by humbly walking alongside the person. We meet a need. We pray for them right then and there. We share scripture with them. We, we listen to them. Sometimes a person in need just needs to, an ear. Someone to sit beside them and let them share their burdens. Just to listen, feel their pain. Sometimes we just need to hold them up in their weakness. Other times we need to mobilize others to help meet a need. I think the other part of this is the other side of it. It's difficult sometimes for us to be vulnerable and and transparent with one another. We're afraid that others will look down upon us or judge us in some way. But if we're going to be a community of genuine faith, if we're going to be a community that the world looks at us and sees a a supernatural unity 
God working in us and through us in, in incredible ways, we have to take the risk at times. We have to be willing to step out, be vulnerable, and be willing to get into each other's lives, to share and then to be willing when someone shares with us to walk with them in the trial. And as we do this, we become instruments of God's redeeming and sanctifying work in in one another's lives. And when we do that, that's what makes the joy really deep and full. Paul is writing back again to the Philippians chapter two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When you hear someone in trial, when they're in the midst of suffering, walk with them. Get in the dirt with them. Consider their needs and their struggles more important than than yours. It's challenging. I know this is challenging. Challenging for me as a pastor. But we need to do it. Maybe this year, when, when the trials come, when your friends are going through the trials, step in it with them. Love them. Meet a need. Journey with them through the trial. So joy and trials, they lead to perfection. Secondly, I want you to see in the text that joy and trials lead to prayerfulness. Look again back at uh, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I've heard this portion of the passage taught about how we can gain wisdom or how we are to pray in, in faith. These verses, really, they're, they're flowing out of this, the verses right above it on trials. James understands that it's really hard at times to see God's hand in the middle of the trials, the middle of the fierce storm. You know, we might even embrace the truth that God's at work in us but it seems as if the storm winds are going to blow the ship. God, I know you're there, but it looks like this is not looking good. It's not looking good. I'm not sure what's ahead. It's like the, the picture there on your, on your ministry guide. Oh, we're going into the fog. I don't know where this road is going to lead. Oh, we're on a mountainside. I don't want to go off the edge. When the storm winds are coming and they're blowing our ship and it looks like we're going to go in the, into the rocks, James, right here, he gives us an anchor to hold on to. You know, it's usually in the storm. It's usually in the storm when we realize, when we realize that we need wisdom. When the trials come, we need more than understanding. We need more than just knowledge. We need a uniting of both understanding and and knowledge, guided by the Holy Spirit, enabling us to live righteous and godly before him, before one another. If I know that God is perfecting me in the trials of life, I want to be wise in, in how I respond and how I act, what I feel, what I say. You know, back in 2012, I remember Angela and I sitting in the doctor's office after a little, little uh, test, and he called us in, and, and he, he says, I have some news for you. You, you have stage two colon cancer, and you're going to have to have your colon removed. And I'm like, all right. You know, how do you respond in those, in those times? I needed wisdom. I needed wisdom. I wanted God to be displayed in my life, even through that diagnosis. I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know what lied before me. He calls us to pray. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him, let him ask God who gives generously. A couple of weeks later, after that surgery, that initial surgery, and I 
I had fever. I was spiking 104 degrees in the the doctor you've done all these tests and finds that, oh, we, we, you have a, an aggressive infection. We've got to take you back in and we've got to cut all that out. Oh, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand this. But yet, God, I need wisdom. I want to put you on display. I want, I want the gospel to be, to be seen and evidenced in my life and through all of this trial that, that I'm going through. It's not about me, it's about you, God. I want to know God is perfecting me in the trials of life and I want to be wise in how I respond, how I speak with others, how I treat the nurses and the doctors. I want to be wise in, in how, I, how I use this for his purposes in the days ahead. Now, let me just get real transparent with you right here. First of the year, 2016, and go back into the doctor. I had some tests. He's like, yeah, we've got some issues. You've got, you've got um, an inflammatory issue of the bile ducts. You're at stage two. There's four stages. Each stage is about five years. And what does that mean? Well, you're, eventually their liver begins to kind of break down. Stage three. Stage four, we're, we're starting to look at maybe a liver transplant. You're like, All right, God, what, what does that mean? What do we do with this? What are you doing? Haven't I been through enough? I mean, these questions come. I don't understand it. But yet, I can trust him. And this is just a small thing. Many of you are experiencing much greater things. I wouldn't even know I had this right now if it not for some blood work. God is faithful and he, can, he is doing a work in me and in you. And even as I share it with you, what I'm doing, I'm, I'm asking you, hey, let's journey in this thing together. Let's do this thing together. Pray with me. Join me in this trial for the glory of God. He can use it for his namesake. You know, we don't want to be like a wave tossed around by the wind. We don't want to be like a ship driven into the rocks by the storm. No, we want an anchor. And that anchor is prayer. When we get diagnosis, when we face trials, and we don't have the answers, when we don't understand, we don't have the knowledge, what do we do? We get on our knees and we just pray. We link arms with one another and we pray together. And we praise God who gives and takes away, blessed be your name. So we're not, we're not asking God to remove the storm from our lives. That's a selfish prayer. I don't necessarily need God to take this away. He's got a purpose in this. You don't need God to just take the storm away. What you want as you face the trials with wisdom, you want him to produce a courageous living you want God to be glorified in, in magnificent ways in you through the trial. Joy in trials is much more about him than it is about you and me. A big God, a big God makes our trials seem small. This is the kind of wisdom that you and I need in the midst of trials. This wisdom only comes when our knees become calloused by prayerfulness. Joy in trials leads to perfection. It leads to prayerfulness. And third, joy in trials leads to parity. Parity. Parity means equality as in amount or status or character. Look back at verse 9. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here we see two, what we call biblical paradoxes. We, we see paradoxes all throughout the, the New Testament. The first will be last, the last will be first. You'll find your life by losing it. 
take up your cross, instrument of death, and follow me. Our strength is made perfect in weakness and on and on. Here, James begins by saying that the the lowly brother will boast or should boast in his exaltation. Or more literally, the, the lowly brother will boast in his height. The low brother will boast in his height. James is speaking specifically to to those Christian Jews that have lost maybe everything. They find themselves in poverty. He's reminding them that uh, though they have no earthly wealth at all, in Christ they have spiritual riches. Luke 6.20 says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next chapter of James, James chapter 2, verse 5, he kind of puts a little more flesh on this paradox. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In Christ, we become heirs of the kingdom of God. All that belongs to God has been given to us through Christ. So in our loss, in our trials, in our brokenness, we are rich. And in this richness, the richness from God, in that we can boast. James also speaks to those whose earthly possessions maybe haven't been taken from them. These are the, the rich, the wealthy. They, they are to boast in their humiliation or, or their lowness. And it's, you know, it's, it's real easy to step out of the context of this passage and see these verses kind of as a, a warning to those who are rich. And sure, there are, there are lessons to, to learn here. James is reminding us that the, that the rich man can, can get caught up in his own pursuits, he says. Wealth can distract us from being dependent upon God. Paul told Timothy to charge the rich to not place their hope in uncertain riches, but to place their hope in God. Riches and position and status, ultimately they fade like the flower in the scorching heat. The context of of this passage and and even these few verses here, it's about trials. Trials are the great equalizer. They, they, they bring us to the same place. Just ask the rich man who, whose young son is in a battle with cancer. Talk to the rich woman who's struggling with memories of child abuse. Trials remind us of the fleeting nature of earthly riches. You see the parody here? The, the poor have no resources in the trials. They can only boast in the exaltation that they have in Christ, the riches that are found in knowing him and belonging to him. The rich have unusable, unusable resources in the trials. can only boast in the humiliation that their dependence is on God alone. The poor to focus on the riches they have in Christ and to make it their boast. The rich are to focus on the lowliness of coming to Christ in poverty and to make it their boast. Both find joy in what Christ has done. Christ becomes the focus of the trial. Joy in trials leads to parity. And lastly, joy in trials leads to promise. Leads to promise. Look back at verse 12. Beautiful passage. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Stop there. Man, this is where it really, really gets good. Here's where joy and hope begin to mingle together in a promise from God. 
Look at it. If, if you and I remain steadfast under our trials, God has a gift, a promise for us. First notice, notice that James says that when we remain steadfast, we are blessed. Oh, the blessedness, the happiness, that joy-filled happiness. Blessed is the one who remains steadfastness, who remains steadfast in the trial. Look at, uh, follow me here. This is, this is, I hope I can communicate this. This is so good. God allows the trials to come in our lives. He is sovereignly in control and he allows the trials to come into our lives. And these trials produce steadfastness. What God is doing, he's making us steadfast because of the trial. And then as we remain in that steadfast that he's producing, he blesses us. I mean, I mean, so here we are. I'm standing here. God brings a trial into my life. And what is it doing? It's producing steadfastness. He's doing that in me. And as I remain in that thing that he's producing in me, what does he, what does he do? He turns around and he blesses me. That's crazy. That's how we can have joy in the midst of trial because God is doing something in us. He's producing the very thing that helps me to get through the trial. And in the midst of that trial, he blesses. Do you follow that? Does that make sense? That's that's cool. So good. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then it even gets better. Look at what he gives us. He gives us the crown of life. And when you and I think of a crown, I mean, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is this gold thing that's on the head and it's got these jewels and it, if I had it on, it would sparkle and glitter in the light. But what the readers here, they, they're thinking of what's common in those days in the athletic competition. When someone won a competition, they were given a, a laurel wreath that they would wear on their head. And they would probably take it back home and set it up there and it would eventually die and the leaves would fall off. But what he's saying here, this, is, this isn't one of those little leaf things. This is the crown of life, a crown of life. Paul speaks of this crown in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Joy in trials leads to the promise And that promise is an imperishable crown of eternal life. 1 John 2.25 says, And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. James says this promise is made to all who love him. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're seeking to love him, you, you have the joy of this promise. This promise is the hope that propels you and me in trial toward joy. If you're not a follower of Christ, you know, this this promise can be yours. You can know joy and, and hope that, as I've been talking about here, you can know this joy and hope and promise of eternal life by turning from sin and, and trusting fully in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Scripture says that for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross He endured the cross that belonged to us. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life. He became that substitute who went to the cross and took our sins and gave us righteousness. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, the scripture says that we will be saved God will raise us, raise us up. So I implore you today, if you don't know this Christ, if you don't know the joy and the hope that we're speaking of here in the midst of these trials, I'd love to share more about it with you. At the end of the service, I'm, I usually stand down here. I'd love to visit with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Others of our staff, anyone here would love to visit with you, tell you what it means to know Christ as Savior and Lord.
today you too can receive this crown of life. Notice a few more, a couple more things from this text. In his sovereignty, God allows the testing and he allows us to experience trials, but, but he doesn't tempt us to sin. Trials can bring temptation. So when we face uh, maybe financial stresses, we're tempted uh, not to trust in God's provision. When we face relationship or or health challenges, we're, we're tempted not to trust in God's faithfulness or to even trust that he's even present. When we, when we suffer or when we're persecuted, we're tempted to think that God's not good or that he's unjust. But yet trials, they come from the outside. Temptations come from the inside. That's what James is, is saying here. He says that, that these temptations are of fleshly desires, it's these fleshly desires that tempt us. See, we, we're responsible for our sins, not, not God. Our worldly desires bring forth sin, and, and ultimately sin brings forth death. Sometimes in our, in our trials, we're, we're, tempted, we're tempted to question God's character. Think about it. In those times when things are pressing in, is God all of who he says he is? But again, God, James, James reminds us that God never changes. He doesn't change. He never changes. He's always been faithful and always will be faithful. He's always been good and forever will be good. He's always and forever gracious and merciful and righteous and just and loving. God may have nothing to do with temptation and sin, but he has everything to do with the good and the perfect gifts that he showers in our lives. And the crown of God's faithfulness and giving good and perfect gifts is found there in verse 18. Of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God through the gospel, through the truth of his word, God has given us new life. We've been regenerated from death into life. It's what, what Jesus calls being born again. God's given us new life in Christ. We become new creatures. We've been transformed. And what we have now is just a foretaste of the promise that awaits us. It's kind of those, the first fruit, just a, just a glimmer of the glory that is, that is yet to come. We can find joy in our trials knowing they lead to promise. That promise will be fulfilled in a place where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more darkness, no more loss, no more death. Endless joy with our Savior. I began by sharing about uh, Tim, Tim Henshaw and his, and his daughter, Anna. The trials that he, his father and daughter were experiencing, had to endure. Tim goes on and he writes this. He says, my process of understanding wasn't instantaneous, but it but as time went by, I was startled to discover joy. Joy in seeing my Christian brothers and sisters, a newfound joy in Sunday services and in Christian music, all of the hymns and contemporary songs that mention joy, their messages suddenly shot straight to my heart. I've been a Christian for most of my life, but I have never felt this. Joy is a sensation beyond happiness. It is one of the most sought after things on earth. Suddenly here, it was for me in the most unexpected places. Life is still difficult. I still must arrange my day around pain, but I know that it is not the point of my day. It is not the point of my life. I don't know exactly how to communicate this to Anna. In a way, it's easy to write the words. It's difficult to walk the walk. Her walk is different from mine. At least I know there is a way. Total desolation is not our fate. Desperation and hopelessness are feelings of this world that need not define us. There is love now and most unexpectedly 
there is joy. Dear brothers and sisters, whether you've come out of a trial, whether you're about to go into a trial, or whether you're right in the middle of a trial right now, count it all joy. Let 2017 be the year of joy. God is at work in your life. Genuine faith is tested by trial. Lean into him. Walk with one another in the trial. Be vulnerable. Take risks. Be gracious with one another. We'll likely mess up. Someone will share something and you'll probably maybe say the wrong thing. Be gracious with that. Link arms. Important thing is that we move with one another in the trial and allow God to do his, pervert, his perfecting work in us individually and then collectively as a church. Pray in faith. See the hope that lies before you. The God who has given generously every good and perfect gift will one day give the crown of eternal life. And as, the, as we do these things, we will know joy. We will know joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this letter from James. God, I know even in my own life, it's, it's hard when, when the trials come, difficulties, to count it all joy. But God, thank you for the promise that you live in us, you are with us, you are for us. You are doing a work in us and you bring forth a steadfastness that enables us to find and live in joy for your namesake. God, help us as a church to do, to bear one another's burdens well. Give us the courage to, to share, to be vulnerable, transparent. And then God, give us the grace to meet those needs in each other's lives. That you might unite us together for your holy namesake. Thank you. Thank you for the trials. We do consider it and count it all joy. In Jesus' name, amen.